Okay. I'm entitled, uh, our, our, our message this morning is True Faith Displays Godly Wisdom. Um, I really wanted to say, I really wanted to title How to Be a Wise Guy, um, but that didn't fit with our theme of true faith. Uh, so turn if you to the book of James. James chapter 3. Beginning in verse 13. We have, we have a short passage uh, this morning. James 3, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. I don't know if you remember or not, the, they had, a while back they had a, a commercial called the Pepsi Challenge. Anybody remember what that was? The Pepsi Challenge? They'd sit someone down and they'd blindfold them. Or, or, they had, or they didn't blindfold them. They had two cups and one was Pepsi, one was Coke. And they, you, know, you can tell the difference and they'd, they'd always choose the Pepsi. Yeah, Pepsi tastes better. Um, that, that's kind of what I, I guess I'm a, I'm a product of our, of our of our commercialized culture. But this is what I thought of when I thought, when I thought of Ch- James chapter 3, verse 13 and 18. It, it's kind of like the Pepsi challenge. James says, this is the wisdom challenge. Can you discern the true wisdom? Can you taste the true wisdom? And it's interesting that James really doesn't define wisdom uh, in this passage. If you, if you, as we were reading, notice he doesn't really define it. What he does is he describes it. He describes its characteristics. Um, if you were to define wisdom, how would you define wisdom? What is wisdom? Anyone want to give a shot? The ability to discern truth. Okay. What does it mean to have wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Really, yeah. The fear of the Lord isn't, yeah, without wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, there is no wisdom. Anyone else? What, is, what does it mean to have wisdom? I, I, uh, I like to try to simplify things as much as possible, but yet without leaving stuff out, of course. But I, I got to thinking, wisdom begins with right belief. It's the right application of right belief. In other words, you have to have right knowledge. You have to have accurate and right knowledge. But it's not just about knowledge. It's the, it's the ability to apply that knowledge in a right and appropriate way, given the circumstances. So that's, that was, that's my best shot. Dan has a really good one. But you have that memorized. Was it Tozer? Who, who? G.I. Packer. Do you mind sharing that? The power to see. The inclination to choose. The best. And the highest goal. Together with the surest means of attaining it. Okay. James really doesn't talk about that. 
That's not what he does. He doesn't define wisdom for us. Instead, what he does is he describes its characteristics. And in fact, we're going to see that he contrasts two different kinds of wisdoms. In fact, one of these wisdoms you need to put like air quotes around. (laughs) Or not air quotes, but literal, literal quotes around. Two wisdoms. And he's going to talk about wisdom that is from above and a wisdom that's not from above. So we'll call that wisdom from below, okay? So we have wisdom from above and wisdom from below. Look with me now again at verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? Stop. This is what we call a rhetorical question. Um, James, I have no doubt, is imagining himself standing in front of them and saying, Who is wise in understanding among you? Um, and thinking that many, if not most of them, would, would probably say, I am. I'm wise in understanding. What, what is he asking them? This, this phrase, wise in understanding. Um, are they separate? Is he saying, how many of you are wise? One. Number two, how many of you are understanding? Is that how we to take these as two separate things? Or, or is this, I guess you could call it, is this a package? Wise and understanding. Um, Proverbs, I think, will help us. Uh, we're going to stroll through Proverbs just a little bit here. Turn back to Proverbs 2. Again, James is very much what we call New Testament wisdom literature. It is, it is very proverbial uh, in its nature. Um, Proverbs chapter 2. Again, we want Scripture to interpret Scripture. So whenever you come across a word or a phrase, you want to look and see where else, you know, does Scripture give us indication anyplace else of what this is or what this means? Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we have wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Now, Real quickly, um, I'm toying with the idea of uh, our next series of going through Proverbs. And one of the things you need to understand, Proverbs is, is a form of poetry. And uh, Hebrew poetry is much different than English poetry. English poetry is based on rhyme and meter. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's English literature. That's really Bad English poetry, but it's but it, English poetry is rhyme and meter. Hebrew poetry is not rhyme and meter at all. What it does is it 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 uh, relates ideas together or phrases together, and there's many different ways that they do that. That that, that Hebrew poetry does that. The, the most common is what's called synonymous parallelism. Ruth, you want to write that down? Synonymous parallelism. Um, two L's, P-A-R-A-L-L. Okay, what that means is the author will state something on the first line. The second line, he will restate the same truth in a different way. Now, there's other ways that 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 uh, that, that they use poetry. They they use antithetical. There are some proverbs that we that are called antithetical. And that is where he'll state something the first line and then the opposite the second line. That's what we call antithetical parallelism. So Hebrew poetry. They, they, uh, they balance, not rhyme and meter, but ideas. So most of the Proverbs, I think, that we're, and, and sometimes it's hard to know. Is it synonymous? Is it, is it 
uh, is it stair, we call staircase, is it antithetical? These, I think, I take as synonymous. All that is to say, I think these are synonymous. Where the second line basically says the same thing as the first line, but says it in a different way. So, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we have wisdom and understanding. Uh, Proverbs 9.10. And this gets back to what, what, Blake, what you said. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So he's restating it. Uh, wisdom and understanding as being virtually synonymous. 19.8, Proverbs 19.8. The one who gets wisdom loves life. Now he's going to restate that in a different way. The one who cherishes understanding will soon prosper. Wisdom and understanding. Proverbs 24.3. By wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding, it is established. And, of course, verse 4 is through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. We see knowledge related as well. So, so we see that that we can't, I don't think he's trying to draw a real sharp distinction between wisdom and understanding. There might be some elements that, that, are, that are distinct, but, but basically wisdom and understanding, are, are kind of, they kind of go together. It's, it's, it's a package deal. So when we talk about wisdom, we're thinking, we think in terms of understanding. Wisdom and understanding. Now, back to James chapter 3. Most of the time, when we think of wisdom, it seems to me, we think in terms of what? We think in terms of decisions. When we, we equate wisdom, we think of wisdom as making good decisions, making wise decisions, decisions about who to marry, about who not to marry, uh, about investments, uh, about purchases. We, typically, it seems like we, we equate wisdom with decision, some, some form of decision. But it's interesting, that's not at all what James equates wisdom to. It's not at all what he, James equates wisdom with. This has nothing to do with decisions. It's interesting because in, in the second half of verse 13, he tells us how he, what he equates wisdom with. Look again at verse 13b. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So how does James describe wisdom? He describes it by what? How we live, how we live our lives. Let me read it again. Let them show it by their good life. By deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So someone in our culture could make all the right decisions but not be wise. According to James, they would not be wise because they, are, they don't what? 
their, their life, their, the way they live their life doesn't show it. Again, he says, let them prove it by their deeds. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Remember chapter 2 with faith? What does he say about faith? What did he say about faith? True faith what? Works. We're not saved by works, but true faith will work. We don't add works to faith, but we know that if someone exercises true saving faith, they will work. He's doing the same thing with wisdom. He's saying those who have true wisdom, you'll see it not by what they say, but how they live their lives. And then he's going to flesh that out. And, 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 and again, in verse 14, he says, If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So in verses 14 to 16, uh, we have wisdom that's from below. Wisdom that's from below. And notice the wisdom that's from below. And I take below, below the heavens, so that would be earthly wisdom. What's its expression? He says, first of all, if you harbor bitter envy. What's bitter envy? Jealousy. Uh, it, it, is, it is contentiousness. It is, it is when the, the, the bitter part of it is contentious. It's contentious envy. When... Another word for envy is would be covetousness. When, when you covet other things, particularly when you covet, covet other people's things. And, and covetousness is not, and envy is not, um, well, uh, you know, uh, Joe bought a new car. I love that car. I'd love to have a car like that. I'd love to have a Maserati like that. I'd love to. That's not necessarily envy. Bitter envy is when you resent the fact that he was able to buy one and you, you couldn't, you can't. So there is a, there is a sense of resentment. There, there is a sense of, of envy where not only do you, do you not enjoy that they were able to buy it, but you resent the fact that you can't. And, and now you hold bitter envy towards them. Not wise that you can make all the right decisions and you can make all the right decisions in the world. You can make all the wise investments and and you've married the right person and you moved just at the right time. And but James says you're a fool. If you harbor bitter envy. Or what? Selfish ambition. This phrase is found seven times in the New Testament. It is organized self-interest. It is my agenda. It is my needs. Uh, in fact, um, turn with me if you would to Philippians chapter 2. One of, the, one of the places we find this is in a classic passage in Philippians chapter 2. where he is, he is exhorting the church in Philippi to live a life of humility. And then he uses Jesus as the ultimate example of that. 
the incarnation as the ultimate example of humbling yourself, the, the, the infinite, omniscient, uh, all-knowing God who, who, who clothed himself in humanity, the ultimate expression of humility. And he says in uh, ver- verse 2, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Uh, this climbing over one another. Now, this, this is what's difficult oftentimes uh, when, when, we, when we go through passages and, we, and, and I preach this and I think, you know, this is so not true of our church. <laughs> sometimes it's hard to relate and sometimes it just doesn't apply to us because we just don't struggle with this. Uh, we, we don't, in, in, in this body, we don't have bitter envy and, and selfish ambition. And, and uh, so sometimes we read this and we go, uh, that's not a problem for us. But I've been in churches where it is, where it's a big problem. And he says, this is not a sign of wisdom, of true, godly, big. In fact, this is a characteristic of wisdom that is below Back in James chapter 3, he says that if you, in fact, harbor bitter envy and selfish ambitions, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Why would he say that? Maybe that's exactly what they were doing. Maybe some were boasting about it. They were boasting about the fact that they were getting over. (laughs) They were making great decisions. They were coming out on top, both in the church and outside the church. Just don't brag about it. That's not something to brag about. And in fact, he says, don't don't lie about it. Don't lie to yourselves. Do not deny the truth about what's going on in your midst, in your churches, and in your hearts. It's expression, the, the, the wisdom from below manifests itself as bitter bitter jealousy, bitter envy, and selfish ambition. And these behaviors lie against the truth. But notice its characteristic. Verse 15. Such wisdom, and I I am reading from the NIV this morning. Um, in, In the NIV, they put wisdom in quotation marks, which I like. This wisdom or such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, here it is, demonic. Verse 15 is is somewhat parenthetical to verses 14 and 16. Because if you look at the end of 14, do not boast or deny the truth. For where you have envy and selfish ambition. So he picks up on the envy and self, self, uh, selfish ambition again. So 15 is parenthetical. So James thinks through, I, I need to describe its origin and its character. And he gives three descriptions. First of all, he says, wisdom that's from below um, is earthly. Earthly. What is earthly? I take that to be, it is man's wisdom. It's man's wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
verse 18. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The the wisdom of this world never conceived of a Savior who would come and suffer and die and rise again. and And that alone would be the payment for salvation. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Man's wisdom, the basic principles and tenets of this world. Colossians, Paul says in Colossians, don't be taken captive by empty and deceptive philosophy, which is based on human or the basic principles of this world. In other words, it is a wisdom that is born out of a, a, a atheistic worldview, a worldview where God does not exist, or certainly any God who would claim any kind of um, ownership of his creation. It's earthly Man's wisdom is based on who is the smartest, who's the cleverest, who's the strongest, who's the richest. Man's wisdom says the ends justify the means. Human ingenuity. Earthly. Uh, And James will tell us clearly you cannot have that both earthly and heavenly wisdom. They cannot coexist. One more text, Matthew chapter 20. Uh, Jesus illustrates this in a different context, but it's the same concept. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, he says this. When it, uh, th- th- by the way, um, did I get the right one? Yeah. Where is that? 2020? Yeah, that's not the one, though. Well, when he was going along, I just thought of it. When he was going along and, and they were jostling over who would be greatest in the kingdom, and what does he say to them? God's kingdom is not like that. If you want to be great, you need to be what? A slave. See, the, the world says in order to be great, you have to be best. You have to be in charge. You have to, you have to lord it over those. And he's saying if you want to be great, you don't. Lord it over, you serve. You become a humble servant. 26, 20? 2026. I knew it was around there somewhere. Yeah. 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority of them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying earthly wisdom is the kind of wisdom that you lorded over others. Second of all, he calls it, uh, the NIV says unspiritual, some say natural. This is a difficult word uh, to to interpret. This is, by the way, the the very same word used in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he talks about the carnal man. I, I, I uh, I wanted to really teach you some deep things, but you wouldn't accept it because you are still carnal. You are still fleshly. This is the same word used here. It is unspiritual, it's carnal, it's fleshly. It it appeals to the flesh. It it appeals to our gratifications, whether it be physical gratifications or or other kinds of gratifications for power, control, for recognition. It's earthly, it's natural, it's fleshly. And then this would have gotten their attention. It's demonic. It's demonic. Matthew 16. Remember the story when Jesus was talking to his disciples. And um, he predicts his death. He would die at the hands of the chief priests. And that he must be killed on the third day, raised to life. And. And Peter took him aside, and this is Peter, and starts to rebuke him. Okay, get this. He's starting to rebuke Jesus. And he said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This classic, this classic uh, confrontation. Jesus turns to Peter and says what? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God or the things of God but the things of man. I don't... I think clearly, he wasn't saying Peter was actually Satan. But in essence, what was he saying? He's saying, you are serving Satan's purposes. You are, a, you are reflecting Satan's ways of doing things. You have the things of men in mind, not the things of God. He calls that demonic. So I, I take it in James when he says demonic, it doesn't mean that they are demon-possessed, their head's going to spin around, they're going to throw up green stuff. But when we display human wisdom that is earthly, that is natural, that, that manifests itself in things like bitter envy and selfish ambition and all other kinds of ungodly ways the the real source of that the real characteristic of that is demonic not godly and again please note nowhere in verses 13 through 18 is there some kind of hybrid wisdom at any given point in time of our lives we are either reflecting Godly wisdom, or we are reflecting, we are, we are, um, uh, we are exhibiting demonic wisdom. Wisdom that is inspired, that is earthly, that is unspiritual, that is fleshly, that's carnal. 
or godly wisdom. You can't, you can't kind of have godly wisdom and kind of reflect demonic wisdom. There's no hybrid wisdom. There's no benign wisdom. You, in other words, there is only one good wisdom. It's, it's either good wisdom or bad wisdom. In fact, he concludes wisdom from below in verse 16. He says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition. Amen. He's referring back to verse 14. There you find disorder in every evil practice. And, and, and this is the telltale sign. If you are following, if you are reflecting, if you are manifesting demonic wisdom, your life will be characterized by chaos, by disorder. And he says every evil thing, and this is probably every kinds, all different kinds of evil things. This is the same, similar phrase to 2 Timothy who says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. That, that's literally is the root of all evils. Well, he doesn't mean all evils, he means all kinds of evils. All kinds of evil things. Same thing here. He, he's saying that this kind of wisdom results in disorder and chaos and every kind of evil thing. This word disorder is the same word used in 1 Corinthians 14 when he talks about the congregations that are, that are speaking in tongues with no, with no interpretation. And everyone's speaking in a tongue and, and it's just total chaos and disorder. Every evil thing. I, I don't think of wisdom in these terms. I think of wisdom as, you know, I bought stock in Apple before, you know. I, it just seems so foreign to me that he's equating wisdom with what our lives, are, what our lives manifest. I know some people whose lives are characterized by constant chaos. It's like, it's like the orbit they live in is just constant chaos. Chaos in their relationships. Chaos in their vocation. I, I saw this. I hate to, I always, well, I did it for almost 10 years. So it's all, some, when I drove RTD and I would listen to conversations on the bus. Constant chaos and disorder. Conflict. Telltale sign of wisdom from below. Chaos in our relationships. Chaos in our practice and how we live our lives. I'm not talking about not planning ahead. I'm not talking about some in my family who, if the plane leaves at 1, they want to leave at 1230. I'm not talking about that kind of chaos. See that? Okay, let me give you a quick... Okay, quick. There's streamliners... And there's complicators. Okay, streamline. Complicators say, well, it only, it's only going to take me 30 minutes to drive. To, uh, we have an appointment. It only take me 30 minutes. So I'm going to leave 30 minutes before. That's a complicator because they, they didn't plan for or, or, or compensate for any kind of flat tire, heavy traffic, accident. Well, thank you. Streamliners compensate for that. They, they, they plan. They plan that stuff in. So when I take, you know this, when I take my family to the airport, I take them there at least two hours beforehand. You just don't know what's, you know, out there on Smith Road and Chambers, you get caught behind that train. 
in this day and age, we still have, we have to stop for trains. I mean, really? So you have to, you have to, you have to plan for that. I know. Why don't they just, okay. Uh, where was I? Uh, chaos. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like the sermon, quite frankly. The sermon has de- degenerated into chaos. Okay. Wisdom from below. Wisdom from above, verses 17 through 18. He, he contrasts now that kind of wisdom with wisdom from above, verse 17. But... The wisdom that comes from above. Where have we seen above again? Chapter 1, verse 17. When he, what does he say in 17? Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. So what does he mean? Probably in chapter 3, verse 17, he's talking about above. He's talking about the Father. He's talking about godly wisdom. This is wisdom that is from heaven. This is godly wisdom. And he gives, what, seven descriptions. First of all, pure. What, what is pure? Pure is without admixture. It's free from contamination. So morally, we are uncontaminated. And again, in context, it would be we, we don't have selfish ambition. We don't have bitter envy. It is pure. Second of all, it's, he says it is peace-loving. Peace-loving. Now, this is not 60s commune, peace-loving. I, I think this would probably be better. As they, they are peacemakers. Notice I didn't say peacekeepers. He's not talking about, there, there are some people who keep the peace at all costs. That's not what God has called us to. We're to be peacemakers. In other words, um, or remember the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says what? Blessed are the peacemakers. For they should be called sons of God. The, 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 this word only occurs here and in Hebrews 12.11. It is to create and sustain peace as much as possible. Now, it's not peace at all costs because oftentimes peace runs, into the, runs head on into truth. And we can't sacrifice truth for the sake of peace. So there are limits to this. But he's saying, by and large, godly wisdom, a a, a person who has godly wisdom is a person of peace. As much as lies within them. He says they're gentle. It's gentle. What does it mean to be gentle? Again, this is probably one of the hardest, one of the hardest Words to translate into English. Well, what, is it, what does this word mean? Gentle. Um, I, I, guess, I guess I'm done. Um, Jesus, this is being like Jesus. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come unto me all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble. Gentleness is strength that's under control. Gentleness is when you could act roughly, but you don't. It's, I guess, equivalent to kindness, to being kind in our words. We just talked about that in verses 1 through 12. Kind in our actions, kind in our intentions. It'd be like handling really fine, expensive ceramic, what do you call like tea sets and stuff? China, ceramic China. You need to be gentle with that stuff. It's going to break easily. So it's strength that's under control. 
reasonable or a lot of different translations. In fact, this is what we call hapax legomenon. Means this is the only word, the only time this word occurs in the Bible, New Testament. Now, what's the rule for a word that only occurs once in the New Testament? <laughs> you, thank you, Miriam Webster. <laughs> oh, you got to be careful about being real dogmatic about what that word means because how do we determine the meaning of a word? First of all, in its context, we've talked about semantic range, and context is what ultimately determines the word and how the Bible uses it elsewhere. So if you can't see how the Bible uses it elsewhere, you have to approach these words with a little bit of, little less dogmatism. We're not quite sure what this means. So what you do, here's what I encourage you to do, as I, I, I constantly remind you, do a translation comparison. Tr- tr- see how various translations translate it. So let me just, I did that. This word that um, in, in the NIV is um, considerate or submissive, or reasonable, amplified, willing to listen. The, the Christian Standard Bible, compliant. The NET, the ESV, and the NIV is impartial. The New King James is without partiality. So there's a wide range of interpretive options here and decisions here. It's hard to determine for sure what he's talking about. It's probably from the standpoint of some kind of idea of not closed-minded. Not being closed-minded. Not being willing to listen and to hear other options. Not being set in your ways. Um, I see this so much with doctrine. We, we, now, there's nothing to reconsider or to be open about, about the, the nature of God. We can be closed-minded about that. We can be closed-minded about the nature of the doctrine of salvation. But there's other doctrines that we need to be we need to be a little willing to be open and listen. Because I learned something when I was nine, and it's all I've ever believed. Doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And it seems like in the church so often we're so unwilling to consider other alternative interpretations, just as an example. But we can be, we can be closed-minded about a lot of different things in our, in our relationships, being so closed-minded and, 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 and not be compliant and impartial, willing to listen. He says it's full of mercy and good fruits. What's interesting, mercy and pity? What's pity? What does it mean to pity someone? I pity the fool, Mr. T. Got to quote my sources. What's pity? You just feel sorry for somebody. Don't, isn't that what pity is? I feel sorry for them. What's compassion? What's the interesting compassion and pity? Compassion gets involved. Compassion feels sorry for them, but then does what? Acts, acts upon it. Pity is, I'm sorry you don't have a warm coat. Compassion is, I'm sorry you don't have a warm coat. Here, have mine. Mercy, that's mercy. It's not pity, it's mercy. And finally, free from hypocrisy. Again, another word only found here 
in the New Testament. James is full of them. Um, and so I did a, a translation study on this last one. Uh, sincere is what NIV is. Amplified in the New King James has without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. Christian standard is without pretense. And then ESV and NIV both have sincere. So it, it has probably some connotations of, of not just being yourself. There's, there's no hypocrisy. There's no airs. There's, there's no pretense. There's no one-upsmanship. Uh, <laughs> anybody here other than me and Mitch, uh, like Monty Python, uh, there's this classic skit at the Hollywood Bowl. And these three, or there's like well, four or five of them. What were they? They're like, you know, guys from inner city London or whatever. And, 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 and they start talking about how bad they had grown up. And they start by saying, we didn't, we didn't have running water. And said, you didn't have running water. We didn't have a toilet. I said, you had a toilet. We didn't have a roof. I said, you know, so it was one-upsmanship. And that's really what he's getting at here. Wisdom is not one-upsmanship in our relationships. And, and we have this, we don't have any, any desire to, you know, you bought that car for, you know, 10000 I got it for eight. That, that kind of thing. Its consequence, verse 18, we wrap up. He says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Does that just sound completely unconnected to the context? Where in verses 13 to 70 does he mention righteousness? He mentions peace. Where it, it, It's almost as if this is, he cut and pasted this from something else. It just seems so out of place. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. It seems so unconnected. He introduces fruit of righteousness, not fruit of wisdom. I would expect him to say the fruit of wisdom. This topic occurs nowhere in the context. I, I think, though, that upon reflection, I think the essential meaning is a perfect conclusion to what he has just said. I think he's saying righteousness is sown and harvested only in peace. In other words, those who cultivate this kind of godly wisdom that I've just described to you will reap a harvest of the fruit of righteousness. And I take this righteousness to be practical righteousness, not positional righteousness. That, in fact, his summation of godly wisdom is you will lead a godly life. True godly wisdom manifests itself in a righteous Life. You can make all the right decisions in the world, and if you live an unrighteous life, it is not godly wisdom. It is wisdom that's from below. Well, which wisdom rules our lives? Well, the truth of the matter is, is sometimes one, sometimes the other. I mean, we need to confess that so often... We are not wise as wise as we think we are. Oh, we're, we're making good decisions. But we need to acknowledge that so often we rely on wisdom that's from below. When we see strife, contention, strained relationships, are we critical? 
Do we extend mercy? Are we willing to bend and listen? Are we willing to consider others? Do we live a life of purity and humility? Is, is peace a high priority with us? And so often I must confess that so often I exhibit wisdom from below, not wisdom from above. The wisdom from above will shape our lives, will shape our lips, will shape our values, true godly wisdom anyway. Think about how, how would, when we operate more in, in godly wisdom, will it transform our marriages, our friendships, our relationships, and even our church life? Let's pray. Father, I confess that so often I exhibit wisdom that is earthly, that is fleshly, and indeed is demonic. Father, as I studied and as I, as I um, prepared, I was so convicted by my lack of wisdom. Oh, I, I, I make good decisions, I think, most of the time. But, but, but you define wisdom so differently than that. You, you define wisdom as how, how my life is characterized and, and how is it manifested in my life. It's manifested through peace. It's, 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 it's manifested in purity. In fruit, good, good fruit and in, in a life of righteousness. Not bitter jealousy, not selfish ambition. So, Father, I pray that we would continue in our lives as we grow in our relationship with you through Christ, that we'd be more aware of which wisdom is truly, which wisdom we are truly manifesting in our lives. Is it from above or from below? Father, we thank you for Jesus who perfectly and in all ways reflected and demonstrated true godly wisdom. May we be more like him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and join him?